Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Is the COVID pandemic considered global while Ebola was not because COVID has laid waste to rich countries while Ebola did not? Is the failure of governments that we see almost everywhere actually the failure of citizens for not demanding more of their leaders? When we ignore the large majority of people on the planet who aren't part of us, the cosmopolitan elite, are we losing a large part of what makes humanity human? Cardinal Michael Cerny, who heads the Vatican's work on refugees and migrants, offers uncomfortable answers in his conversation with Alan Stoger. Cardinal Michael, the coronavirus pandemic has already generated a deadly tsunami with health, social, political, economic impacts, and many more coming. Governments in most places have done a very poor job, it seems. What lessons do you think can be learned? How do we do better with this crisis and with the crises we're likely to have in the coming years around the globe? I think a good beginning um, would be not to put too much blame on COVID. Obviously, COVID is a powerful uh, reality, a powerful force, and it has its uh, it's doing its own damage. But the question you asked wasn't uh, really a COVID question. It was a question, uh, finally, about uh, governance. And so what COVID has done is to apply an extraordinary and unusually powerful uh, microscope to uh, worldwide governance. And most of what we see through the microscope's lens is not pretty. It is not pretty at all. And maybe before COVID, we had sort of gotten used to bungling along in this way. And so it didn't necessarily alarm us or uh, surprise us when things went more or less badly. But under COVID, with the uh, COVID microscope, we see the interconnected mismanagements of the different spheres of our lives. While it's tempting to give uh, government a a bad uh, report card, it's probably more useful to give ourselves a bad report card and ask ourselves what we're doing to make uh, a bit more sure that we have the kind of governance that we, especially our poor and our planet, need, deserve and must have. So that would be my first sort of COVID lesson, if you like, or COVID takeaway. Namely, that uh, yes, it's been a terrible set of months with terrible suffering and terrible consequences, but I don't think, at least from the point of view of uh, your foundation and this program, uh, the the first big takeaway lesson isn't about COVID. It's about our inability to manage what the Holy Father calls our common home. We are proving to be very poor householders. And we're proving to be uh, very poor uh, members of the same unique and only family that's living in this unique household, this unique home. And uh, we're, we're doing a, a poor job of it. To pull on that thread, this has obviously been the first truly global crisis of the modern era, potentially impacting anyone, anywhere. Every continent is affected. Yet the responses have been anything but global. Borders closed, travel stopped, aid stopped, 
people looking inward rather than outward. And we would have thought, we would have thought that we were global citizens. We would have thought that we could operate at a global level. Why have we, and when I say we, I mean almost everyone, failed to recognize how global this is? You touched on it already. Could you expand a bit? I, I would be glad to expand on it, and I would do it by uh, attacking um, the key word you used, uh, namely global. Uh, this is a word that we've been uh, taught and, in a sense, obliged uh, to use, uh, I think, since the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's when global started to come in because we were no longer divided into two or three or four worlds, but we were allegedly now one world. So then global came in. and. Um, I ask myself, uh, re responding to your question, whether the word global isn't overloaded or is, isn't overrated. Um, let's just look at COVID for, for just for a minute and ask ourselves, if I could use two, two different um, uh, modes of governance and ask me, which one is the more important? You, the way you put it, it would be, it sound like the, your biggest disappointment regarding COVID, it has to do with the World Health Organization, namely whatever the, the WHO failed to do to manage the pandemic globally. From where I sit, I, I would say, yeah, the, maybe the, the World WHO did, a, I don't know, a B, a, a B job or a B minus, or probably not a B plus. But anyway, I'm not judging that and I don't even know. But what seems to have mattered much more to real people on on earth is how the health system in their respective country, in their respective province or state, and in their respective city or countryside, how that worked. And there the answers are very varied. And there are places with huge uh, GDPs and pathetic uh, health systems and very bad results. And there are places with very little money or, or none at all where whatever health facilities they had seemed to do the, the, the minimum necessary and the results are at least bearable. So um, you say the first global crisis. I, maybe I had my global crisis when we started using the word global and so I don't think it's the first. But you see what I mean? It's, it's, I'm not so sure that global is the right, is a helpful lens. It's true, it's around the world. It's true, it's more or less simultaneous, more or less everywhere. But, but even that's not really true. One of the reasons I think that we're, I'll be a bit harsh. One of the reasons I think we're having this program is because COVID hit the wealthiest countries first, the biggest and the most important countries first. I, I use those words obviously in quotes. Uh, if this hadn't been the case, if this was another Ebola, I doubt that you would have invited me to the program. Uh, Sad but true. Well, I, 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 I would have because I want. I very much value your views, and I want to talk about other global crises like migration, like human slavery, uh, like climate, where arguably it isn't the WHOs of the world that are doing a good or bad job, but rather the unwillingness of countries to collaborate together to find common solutions to challenges that, that I do think are global. And I've mentioned several of them. I know you're deeply engaged with those. Well, that, that's, that's right. 
That's right. And, and, and I'll take back some of my, uh, my sarcasm about global, uh, because you've invited me to me comment on the global, the new global compacts, the new global compact for, uh, refugees and the new global compact for, uh, safe, orderly, uh, migration. And, uh, these, uh, compacts, um, which were miraculously, uh, agreed, uh, in uh, the space of two short years, and which uh, the vast majority of countries have, uh, or what I could call the countries of goodwill, have uh, signed up to. And um, these are these compacts are frameworks for collaboration. So they address exactly what you were asking about. Where you you say the word you want you want the word global to mean we're cooperating to face the uh, problems which. Uh, any any person with common sense would say are uh, common problems or uh, general problems, certainly way beyond the limits of any one nation state, uh, beyond the limits of any one continent, and that need to be need to be dealt with on on questions of migration and refugees. Uh, it's very very important that uh, countries cooperate, and if if they were to cooperate as the two compacts foresee and lay out how to do it. And if uh, responsibilities and burdens were shared, which is, uh, I think, the, the, the heart of the matter, that, that we share responsibilities for what are our shared problems, then um, migration and refugee flows would be much more uh, responsibly, uh, humanely, uh, efficiently, and uh, usefully uh, managed or governed or governanced, use the word. In other words, they're not to be controlled but but to be to be managed the compacts are a good example of as you said nations of goodwill people of goodwill trying to define solutions i wonder to what extent those compacts are in fact changing realities and obviously we have a situation in the americas which is different than a situation in africa in the middle east given the current U.S. administration, but I'd even argue that Europe has talked a much better game than they fact executed when it comes to a humane solution or a humane management, much better word, you're right, a humane management of refugee flows and, and migratory rights. Now, without going towards this country's bad or that country's good, uh, I worry a lot about the gap between diplomatic solutions Paris is a perfect example on climate and actual execution of, of the changes reality. Am I being too cynical? I, I don't think you're being cynical, but I think you're, you're, uh, I, if I could just uh, broaden your view a little bit, because I think there is, there's a way of saving the situation at least partially. Uh, this is not going to uh, turn your mind right around, but I think it's a bit, it's a bit of good news hidden in the in all the in all the chaff and and the and the background noise. Uh, the, the two the two topics which you've now put on the table, not in other words, not only migration but also climate, uh, are both um, uh, complex, uh, let's say, problematics, which include uh, great risks, great costs, and also great uh, potential for good. And both of them happen to be toxic, politically toxic, or uh, ideologically toxic, or uh, populistically toxic. In other words, these are both 
uh, maybe today uh, uh, migrants more than climate. I, um, I'd be interested what, whether you agree with me, but they're both toxic. And what does that mean? I hope I'm not speaking out of, uh, out of line here and revealing secrets which I shouldn't reveal. Uh, but in fact, uh, some of the governments which both you and I might be quite quick to criticize are in fact uh, implementing the uh, compacts and are making progress, but they're not in a good position to talk about it. In other words, the, the behavior or the performance is actually better than the, than the rhetoric. I find that very, a very happy thought, I must say, although I don't want to say that it solves all problems. <laughs> It is a very happy thought, and it's good that it is happening. But at the same time, we've seen migrant communities in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, in the Americas, targeted as vectors of infection. It's become very easy to make that accusation because it reinforces other biases and other policies. There is this tendency, I'm afraid, that when things go bad, uh, we look towards lowest common denominators, so closing borders. Even the WHO repeatedly comes out as very recently and said, border closures are not a solution to the problem. Yet borders are increasingly either remaining closed or being reclosed. We see it in Europe, we see it in the Middle East, we see it in the Americas. I don't know to what extent COVID has made uh, the plight of uh, vulnerable people on the move uh, worse uh, because uh, they're being used as a new, there's a new form of scapegoating that, you know, that's added on to what they were already having. But again, uh, just a, a little counterbalance. Uh, you also have to bring in stories like the, uh, the emptying of detention centers, where, where uh, something which uh, good people of uh, sound mind and goodwill were, were have been pushing for ages, that detention is not an appropriate uh, means of handling um, uh, migratory issues or refugee issues that, that you don't imprison people because their their legal status is is under review uh, and and least of all do you imprison them uh, separately from their their children or their parents so detention centers have been emptied because of the risk uh, or the high probability of uh, infection and uh, so again, being cheerful, I say, well, maybe COVID provided the uh, excuse for closing this, these centers, which otherwise public opinion might have, uh, you know, balked at the idea that these uh, um, people call them illegal. We know that they're just irregular people who are, whose papers are being sorted out uh, needed to be locked up for that reason. Anyway, that's just a one one anecdote to go against the. The trend, but you, I, I think it. You're right that the probably, um, well, I don't know if you're right. Whether whether has COVID made the uh, the ideological wars about migrants and refugees significantly worse? It certainly has made their situation worse, at least in the short run. Although there are some exceptions, but I don't know. Um, I've been thinking about this in a slightly different way. I haven't used the word leadership, but I have been wondering um, or looking for, yes, and wondering about where are or how are the clusters of um, people who uh, are working together on solutions? And 
I asked myself whether the uh, uh, COVID crisis has brought us to this uh, to this rather healthy point where people with good ideas and good solutions and good proposals are able to say, actually, I don't mind, very, I don't care whether it's my solution or your solution or half of each or two thirds of one, um, but I am uh, committed to finding a solution and working on it together. Uh, I mean, maybe this is, sounds like uh, like uh, apple pie, and it's not worth mentioning. But I have the feeling that uh, it, for us to get the, to the kinds of solutions, which I again go back to the global compacts as examples of, you know, there's no heroes in the global compacts. The, the global compacts work uh, in a non-heroic way, and uh, I wonder if a, a kind of non-heroic and maybe in that sense non-leader approach. Um, or you, with uh, to put it subjectively, with people's egos in put neutral, temporarily at least, so that we can get working together on on problems and solutions. Whether that might not be um, in a sort of hidden way the magic of the moment, I wonder whether we should whether we should talk about uh, whether we should talk about leaders using uh, the future tense. Or whether we should just be quiet about that and wait and then say, oh, looking back over our shoulder, oh, I guess we had a leader and it turned out to be so-and-so and we're so pleased and we're so happy that so-and-so led us. But then that leads to a whole nother problem again back that we were brushing alongside, which is the question of governance. And uh, and um, that's, that, that is an enormous problem. Maybe it's too big a problem for for this one conversation. So on leadership, uh, what I, uh, the way I would translate it or parse it at this moment is the person who uh, might even take the second or third place in the picture, not necessarily the, the number one position, but who is actually the one who helps uh, the largest uh, variety and possibly number of people to contribute constructively to solutions. And uh, this, uh, to me, is uh, what is, when I see examples of that, uh, that makes me hopeful. And I, yeah. I love the definition because we aren't, we don't need heroes. We need heroes in very particular incidents, and often they pop up, a burning building, someone saves people. We do, I would argue, need leaders to develop and execute and gather new solutions. And whether that is, it's probably not an individual, as you said, it's probably a collective. It's probably people from around the world uh, who have different perspectives, different experiences coming together. And I'm optimistic that in some cases, as you've just said, these people are coming together with new solutions. But I see an institutional framework, which is very, very rigid, very static that needs knocking over in some cases. And I'm looking for people who are willing to do that. Institutions that are willing to say, let's, let's, we've got to do some things differently here or we're going to end up quite badly. Is that, is that too much to hope for? Uh, it's a lot, but um, it's not too much. And in fact, I think um, the Holy Father has had... Uh, intuitions along the lines that you are uh, articulating and uh, at least uh, three times 
he has uh, invited what uh, in Spanish are called movimientos populares, and I would call them grassroots organizations, uh, to, to come together and to articulate their, uh, you know, what, uh, what's, on their, what's on their minds and hearts, what, what's troubling them. Uh, and in each case, uh, the, it's facilitated a real dialogue between Pope Francis and them. And the, the three great headings which uh, we've used in the popular movement meetings are uh, uh, housing, uh, work, uh, land, and land including uh, food security. What most moves me and touches me and what I think is the most relevant to your question and uh, proves that I'm, again, wildly idealistic, I suppose, but what most moves me is when he says to them, and these are the uh, people who uh, are, let's say, objectively known as the marginalized or the excluded or the peripheral or the etc. Uh, he says, there is no solution without you. There is no solution without you. He didn't say it would take longer without you or it won't be as good without you. He said, there's no solution without you. And uh, digesting what that word means, I think, is... Um, is important for us. I say us because I uh, presume without, I think, I don't think I'm being harsh that most of us who are participating and listening and involved in, in the community around uh, your foundation are uh, privileged people, elite people, uh, very well-off people proportionately. And uh, so it, it doesn't quite compute immediately that there's no solution without them because we haven't counted on them for solutions. We have sometimes talked about them as the problem or as having problems, but we rarely, rarely think of them as part of the solution. And to say that there is no solution without them, I think is a real topsy-turvy uh, way of seeing things. And I think it's very sound. And so when I see examples of it, it's, again, it cheers me up. How do you not institutionalize that, but how do you broaden that understanding? I, I personally, I, uh, I, I wouldn't broaden it. I would multiply it. it, which is what I meant by broadening. How do you get people? And and that's one of if you're being optimistic about COVID, <laughs> and a recognition that everybody is potentially exposed to this. So unless you do indeed, you can't build enough walls. Uh, you really do do a need to have a solution where everyone, including the marginalized, maybe most importantly the marginalized, uh, are engaged with whatever comes out of this. One can even think about the vaccine. Vaccinating the rich will not solve the problem. Vaccinating everyone has to be the solution if someday we have a vaccine. We are not conditioned in this world to think in those terms. Yeah, uh, you know when you when you get as concrete as uh, as the vaccine, uh, then you're also getting concrete about the uh, the capacity, the the research, uh, development, and production and distribution capacity. And now we're we're talking industry, uh, so now this is becoming uncomfortably concrete and specific. And uh, I don't know if that's what you want to talk about, but. Uh, I think what uh... well, we're, also talking, we're also talking governance and philosophy of governance and inclusion in both the decision making and in execution. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, but but what makes me uh, nervous is that um, while people like you and me talk governance and all, uh, nice words like that, uh, there 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 there's an there's an industrial complex which um, I, I don't think it's too strong to say controls this uh, sector of human life, and uh, there are very uh, powerful interests there. And I don't know whether our uh, governance structures have the strength, the courage, the resources, the will uh, to govern. To govern, do they? And in the absence of that strength, courage, and resources, we won't. This won't end well. Well, it will end as I think as stupidly as the idea of of gated communities. The idea that that you can gate reality in such a way as to have it good yourself uh, and the hell with the rest that's that's a very big mistake and it's and you said I think you didn't use the same words and you were more polite, but I mean basically you said that if we take that approach to the vaccine it's a it's a non it's a non solution and uh you 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 well might be right or you well might be uh uh, too idealistic and the fact is that the only people who have to be vaccinated are the people who take planes and uh, people who don't move around don't need to be vaccinated because uh they so anyway uh, so we we're we're talking about a solution for the 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 one seventh the one seventh of the world that is doing well uh, which is the proportion of most things that go right on this planet the one seventh this has been a, a fabulous conversation. I really appreciate. There's a real need at this point to think about where we are, where we need to get to, and how to get there. And, and you've made a number of suggestions, and, and more importantly, observations that I think are valuable for the people who are engaged with the Telberg Foundation uh, to hear, to experience, to think about. So I, I very much appreciate the time you spent with us today the thoughts you've shared, and the invitation, which you already, already accepted, I think, to do it again sometime. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, especially if we can go out to dinner afterwards. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments, and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.